Hey there, Conquerors. My name is Mike, and welcome to the Conquering Columbus podcast, where we take industry leaders from across Columbus to learn about how they got to where they are and what makes them tick. Today is episode 95 of the show, and our guest is Bill Balderas. And Bill is the founder at Futurity, and he's also a well-known speaker and contributor for media outlets like NPR, Money Magazine, and The Wall Street Journal. So I definitely think you'll enjoy this episode and learn a lot. Before we get to that interview, though, I want to ask you all for a quick favor. If you haven't already, pick up your phone and hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're listening on. It really helps support our show, and it will make sure you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. We also want to take a moment to thank some of our supporters. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at GoFMX.com. Mike here again. Do you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus? We are looking for some new supporters to help keep the show going in 2018. To inquire about how you can help support the podcast, please send an email to Mike at ConqueringColumbus.com. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Our guest today is Bill Balderas, and Bill is the founder and president of Futurity. And Futurity is focused on helping businesses drive innovation, disrupt industries, and develop new products and services. And uh, before Futurity, Bill has been a founder of several other companies, including Webbed Marketing and Fathom Healthcare. And Bill has spoken at over 150 conferences across the country on a variety of topics. And he's been featured in over 100 media outlets, including NPR, The Wall Street Journal, and more. And welcome to Conquering Columbus, Bill. We're excited to have you on the show today. Great. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and it's, it's always good. You know, end of the day, I really enjoy kind of finishing off with a podcast. But what's a typical day look like for you? Sure, sure. Great question. Um, I spend a lot of time, my area is really divided into two areas. I focus either working with clients or potential clients. So today I had a couple client meetings uh, early in the day or working with developing and supporting our team. So I would say generally it's, it's about half and half. 
Uh, so today I had a couple client meetings early in the day, got back, worked with some team on the team on some new uh, kickoffs and some new projects that we're working on. Um, went back, had a couple more uh, client calls. So in and out of the office a lot, um, spending a lot of time just really either, either supporting clients or supporting the team or looking for new partners. Um, we're working on some pretty innovative, fun stuff. So that was my, my coffee meeting in the afternoon I forgot about. So spent some time with a company that would potentially be a, a partner for us. That's great. So one of the places we like to really kick it off before we dive into too much detail and what you got going on today is maybe uh, take us back to maybe your childhood, your upbringing, and then your path through college and all the details in between that you can uh, kind of think of. Sure. Great. Uh, yeah, I'm from a, a small town in West Central Ohio called St. Mary's. Um, it's known for, actually, I saw when you get the 419 area code, so one of you knows where it's at at least. So, Yeah, familiar with the big wrestling school, at least when I was growing yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. There's generally, there, there's a couple things there. There's a lake, there's a football team, and there's a wrestling team. So that's generally what it's <laughs> known for. Uh, big guys, lots of big German Catholic guys there. So, uh, yeah, but uh, great area, great small town to grow up in. Um, grew up there. Um, you know, had a, a you know really supportive uh, family with my mom, my sisters. Still very close to my sisters today. Um, went to school in Bowling Green. Um, loved Bowling Green. Lots of first generation college uh, students there. You know, really fit with the kind of the upbringing. A lot of kids like me, so really uh, enjoyed there. Met my wife there. Um, um, I studied journalism there, and you know, part of that is growing up in a small town. You didn't know a lot of people that went to college. You know, it was very much a, it's a, it's a working class, blue collar town, lots of farms and factories. And so the people I knew that went to college, they were either teachers or, you know, I knew the guy that worked for the newspaper that had a journalism degree. So in terms of my exposure to the world, there were only a few things that I knew you went to college for. So that was why I went into journalism. I like to write. Uh, so uh, that got me into Bowling Green. Um, you know, I was actually, it was not a lot of people, especially then, where I graduated, went on to college from St. Mary's. You know, there's kind of a, a lot of people tend to stick close by to their town. Um, and so the way I went to college was actually an accident. Um, I was sitting in study hall and the guy next to me was going to Bowling Green and, you know, he kind of flipped to the back. And he's like, hey, aren't, aren't, it says here if you're a National Air Scholar, you get a full ride scholarship to Bowling Green like you do. And this was May of my senior year. So I was still like unsure if I was going to college. So it was one of those moments that set me on a path a little bit. So I uh, ended up going to Bowling Green, had a great, experience there, graduated with a journalism degree, and, you know, graduated in 1997, the year that the newspaper started dying, so it was a perfect time to have a journalism degree because it's kind of the beginning of the end for print journalism, um, but this new thing called the internet was taking hold and, and very popular. I remember building my first web page in college, uh, so that really got me on the path to startups and technology and, and brought me to Columbus about 20 years ago for that reason. Yeah, that internet thing kind of took off. I think it's going to work out. I think it might be something. <laughs> but uh, so in college, you know, you studied journalism, you graduated with journalism. Correct. And what kind of pushed you towards, I mean, obviously you talk about the end of journalism sure. in terms of print, but what kind of pushed you really, other than that, was there anything that pushed you towards sure. the web design and, yep. and that sort of thing? Yep, absolutely. So I knew pretty early on I would never be the hard-hitting journalist. Uh, I just don't have it in me to, to harass people for a story. I wanted to be the, the good guy. I wanted to be their friend. So I went the route of public relations journalism. You know, when, when the professor said, you get to make up quotes for people and then just get their permission. It's like, that's, that's a lot easier than harassing somebody or trying to uh, do breaking news. So I liked that route. Um, I liked to write. Um, when I graduated, I went into more marketing. The first role was with Fifth Third Bank in Toledo. So uh, I was mainly writing, doing, I, I was writing the inserts you get in your canceled check envelope. So it was, you know, a good entry level job. I was getting to, to do something, but um, started early with writing there. Uh, but what 
when I, we knew we wanted to come to Columbus, my wife and I, we had, you know, her, her sister was here. We just knew there was a lot going on here. And it was interesting. I, I was interviewing here. Um, I interviewed for a magazine that's based out of here. I interviewed for a, a fast food franchise that's based out of Columbus. And I interviewed at a tech company. And it was 1997, and there were lots of jobs, so it wasn't that I was especially talented, but I got offers from all three. And I remember talking to my family about them, and they're like, eh, go with the magazine or go with the food. It's like this internet thing. You know, I couldn't really explain what it was. In 1997, people still dial. People did have internet. I think half, only half of all people had the internet, and it was AOL dial-up. So, uh, so it was a very different world then. Uh, but I knew there was something about it, and you know, my wife, life would have been a very different path had I gone to, to publishing or to, to food instead. So you went from Fifth Third, and then you jumped into, well, what was that next role, like more of the details on that? Sure, sure. It was called Energy.com. They were based here in Columbus. It was, a, it was a great place to learn about the startup world. We were a small group. You know, I was probably employees, seven or eight. We grew to about 20. Uh, it's the first time I got the experience of raising capital. Uh, and just to put you in perspective, with the world, Columbus is so different now. The world's so different now. But in 1997, our CEO, he was a more of a programmer and IT guy, and that was the thought in 1997. You started .com and you put a programmer in charge, not necessarily a, a business person. Uh, and I remember we had a, a meeting and like, you know, we all had phones on our desk and the phones would ring and just me, the new guy, junior level guy in marketing, and it'd be some VC out of, you know, LA or Chicago, New York, wanting to invest in our little eight person, 10 person company. Uh, so having that exposure at 22, 23 years old was pretty amazing. But I remember one time we had a company meeting, we're all around the table, and we were living the dot-com lifestyle. We would have like glass sculptures of the logo in the middle of the table. We had a guy playing acoustic guitar in the background. We wrote in, literally would write in limos sometimes. Uh, so we did some pretty, you know, we thought we were in Silicon Valley and, and did some pretty outlandish stuff. And we never really got a business model. We never really, you know, the business did not work out. But I remember uh, our CEO saying, you know, now, now we're getting a lot of call from, from VCs and we're, we're taking them seriously and we're having conversations and someone said, hey, we should probably explain what VCs are. And he said, well, VC is a virtual capitalist. And she said, no, it's a venture capitalist. Like, oh, that's right, it's a venture capitalist. So even just the point of that story being like in 1997, even the CEOs of tech companies weren't sure what was going on. Um, but I had the bug. I was bitten by we, we wrote the first site in HTML. It was, you know, we were trying to hack together a community site. And, and we were optimizing for search on AltaVista and Excite and Ask Jeeves. Um, I remember when Google was launched. It was it launched while I was at that company. Uh, so I definitely had the bug then for technology, startups, you know, that, that, that whole dynamic. So you guys were optimizing search for those different engines is what you're saying? We were. We were. And I remember, you know, then there was no such thing as black hat, white hat. You just did what you had to do to get people to the site. Uh, and keyword tag actually meant something then. So, and, you know, back then it was, you know, um, whatever the celebrity, you know, Britney Spears or whatever, the celebrity of the day, we were sitting there stuffing uh, Pamela Anderson. You know, people like stuff keywords into the meta tags or write stories about stuff that weren't really about energy. And, and so it was a very different world optimizing for AltaVista, Excite. There's an article, it's still online. Uh, it was the first major news pickup I had. And there was a search engine called GoTo, not Go, GoTo.com. That was a pay-per-click search engine. And so the idea of actually paying, we were paying like a penny a click for traffic, was completely novel. No one had heard of this. No one was doing this. And there's a story of me and where I'm quoted saying like, Basically, the reporter's like, is this, will people ever actually pay for search rankings, and is that okay? Um, and, and just to the, the, give you an idea of where the industry was, um, there was uh, GeoCities and Tripods. This was even pre-MySpace. You know, there was this idea of social media, but it wasn't like it is today. So how did your career grow in that role, and then where did you transition after that? Sure, sure. So I learned a lot there. I got the bug. I have contacts there that I still keep to this day. Um, 
as the company was was kind of getting close to an acquisition, and you know, it was, it was clear we didn't really have a great business plan or a you know real clear future. Um, I went to a company called DPEC, which became Mind Leaders, and so they were great Columbus success story. Carol Clark was the, the founder and CEO. She's still uh, very active in the angel world. Anyone that's raised money in Columbus has probably talked to Carol over the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, and several of us from energy.com went to DPEC. Um, they were doing online learning, um, originally going from like literally installing tapes on mainframes to this idea of having HTML-based learning. Uh, they were the first company to take online learning from something you load onto a server to web-based learning. Uh, so again, very novel, very early stage company, first one to do something like that. I was probably employee 50 or 60 there, and we grew to almost 300 people. That was also my first exposure to doing a company that did a lot of rounds of funding, or multiple rounds of fundings, and measuring that in you know, a bigger number than at energy.com. So I got, a, you know, Carol was great. She, again, I was young and inexperienced, and she gave me the chance to be part of some of those discussions and, and be part of that culture. So there again, I, I learned about online learning, I learned about marketing, but I mainly learned about startups and, and how to work with investors and a board and funders. What were some of your actual activities or tasks that you were doing while you were there? Sure. The, the actual task was a pretty tactical job, honestly. But the main thing I was doing was I was, so it was online learning. We produced about 100 courses a quarter, if I'm remembering right. And so I would license the rights to the book that we would turn into an online course. So again, this is, if you think about where online learning is today, you know, then they were essentially books online. And they were great and people got, you know, it was like a Microsoft and Cisco certification. So I, I'd negotiate with publishers, get the rights to those books. Our developers would then chunk those books into online learning. Um, so I learned a lot. I learned about publishing. The, the, the tactical stuff was great, uh, but it was really the exposure to that, that world and what it's like to have a startup and to grow from 60 to 300 and to go through multiple, you know, the company went through multiple acquisitions and, and rounds of funding. So less, less glass sculptures, though, and, and people playing guitar? Definitely ran much better. It was a, actually, it was right around the corner. It's, <laughs> we were pretty close where it was. It was the old Big Bear Warehouse. So it was a very like, humble, modest space. It was focused on, it generated revenue, it was, it was ran like a business. Those, the people I met there, I still, many of those people are still some of my best friends. I work with them every day. I talk to Carol often. So the relationships I made there carried me the next 20 years of my career. Uh, but that's a great point. It was, it was less about the flash and the glamour of what we had at energy.com to let's run a business, let's make money, let's get a good return for our investors. Yeah, absolutely. And so kind of from there, what do your next steps look like? Sure. So then I went to a company called um, CMHC Systems at the time. And again, this was, so this was in the behavioral health space, very early phases of electronic medical records. Um, so right now we all have EMRs and EHRs. It's a, day of, a fact of everyday life. This was a pioneer in that space. Um, there, it was really interesting because they were publicly traded. They took the company private, and then there was a, a private equity acquisition. So they, they became NetSmart Technologies. So again, what I was doing specifically, I had a, a product line. I was, I was a product manager for the first and only time in my career. I was probably the worst product manager in history because I'm, I'm not a detail person, I'm not a task person, I'm not a deadline person, and, and product management is all about discipline and organization. So um, I don't think I won the employee of the year type of awards there, but I definitely, I was there a very short time. But the lesson there again was what, you know, what can happen in a tech company when you do these multiple funding and shifts in corporate structure. Um, Mike Morgan was my boss at the time, now he's CEO of UpDocs, again, great, great friend, great mentor, learned so much from him there. And so the, the tactical stuff I did, I wasn't even very good at, but what I learned there, what I walked away with, I was only there nine months, it was, uh, it was very valuable. And then transitioning from there, where do we go next? Sure, like sure. So only one more stop before the startup world. Uh, 
uh, and that was to um, ECNext. And like all the companies around, if they went through a change, I usually join right at the time of transition. So ECNext became Manta, uh, which I suspect a lot of your listeners are familiar with. Again, early stage of content, um, you know, selling content in chunks. Was that by choice too? Like, were you were you transitioning like strategically, or was it just kind of like it happened at the right time, right place? Do you recall that? Yep. The first time was an accident. The the second and third times, I realized I like industries that are in transition, companies that are in transition. Uh, so it you know it was by accident at first, but then I discovered I like being on the early stage of stuff. Okay. Um, I didn't mention Energy.com. Their mission was uh, to help consumers buy energy in the age of deregulation, and that was the early days of deregulation. So you had that early days of web-based training early days of electronic health records, and then with Manta, EC Next, you know, we went from uh, early days of, of selling content, and then being, you know, today saying you're, uh, your site is focused heavily on generating revenue from AdSense, it's kind of a dirty word, people, oh, it's a made for AdSense site. At that point, it wasn't, you know, we were driving a lot of traffic, we had really valuable ads, so it was a mainly an ad-supported site, but literally, I mean, millions and millions, and hundreds of millions of pages at some point. One of the biggest sites on the internet at one point, it was like one of the top 10 largest sites on the internet right here in Columbus, Ohio. So we got to play at the very biggest leagues in terms of um, what were, you know, great relationships with Google, with Yahoo, um, early days of social media again. So had this direct tie-in by, you know, one of the best things you can do for your career is to work with or for a company doing great things. And ECNext and Manta, they were playing at that highest tier. People knew that name. Uh, and there I got to work for Pam Springer. So just again, you're not going to meet a better startup CEO, a smarter, tougher, more driven person. She she held me to a standard. You know, she would bust my chops when I screwed up, but she'd uh, give empower me to do a good job when I got to when I did a good job. And and so I I, I said this before, but I think I'm the only person in Columbus that's worked for Carol Clark, Mike Morgan, and Pam Springer. So I feel like you can't you can't get an MBA that good. Like you can't work for three better people with different skill sets. And, uh, and one day I went to Pam and I said, I, I love what I'm doing here. Then I was truly doing online marketing, digital marketing, uh, really getting into SEO and social media and PPC. And I said, Pam, I love what I'm doing here. I want to do more, but I want to start a, a company. And she said, great, we'll be your first client. You can keep your desk here. Uh, you can build a team you know, around us. And then I went back to uh, Mike at NetSmart. And he said, I'll be your second client. I went to Carol at MindLoop. She said, I'll be your third client. And so basically all my old employers became the very first client, and because of their support and Pam's support, I got to start it right out of her offices. How did that process evolve, obviously? I mean, you, you mentioned how you got your first clients. Um, how did the company begin to grow, and then how did your guys' offerings and product line evolve, and sure. when did you eventually branch out and kind yep. of just uh, kind of do your own thing? Yeah, exactly. So this was, this was 2006, and you know, today if I go to a coffee shop here and I say, who here is a, a social media consultant, everybody would raise their hand. You know, it's, a, it's kind of a, a cliche today. In 2006, this was, you know, YouTube was new, Twitter was new, Facebook had just opened up off college campuses. The, the founders of Instagram and Snapchat were still in middle school. So this was very, very early days of, of social media. Um, search was evolving, you know, Google had been around a few years, but it still hadn't really, it's not what it is today. The algorithms were rapidly changing. And so part of it is just, you know, at the top of the show, you mentioned the, the conferences and the media outlets. We just got so many opportunities. Everybody wanted to have us out at the conferences, everybody wanted to have us speak. Uh, interview us. So I was, I think it was in 2009, I spoke at 60 different events from California to New York, and you'd leave every one of them with a pile of business cards of, of companies that wanted to do business with you, uh, just because there weren't a lot of search companies, there weren't a lot of social media companies, there were, there were some hobbyists, there were like the equivalent of two guys in the garage doing it, but there really wasn't, weren't agencies built around that. Um, so we want a lot of direct clients. We were, you know, we were working out of Panera Bread and 
uh, kitchen tables and winning clients we had no business winning, winning you know, big retailers, Fortune 500 companies. Uh, and then other agencies started approaching us and they would have great clients and they didn't want to build this in-house or know how to build it. So they started outsourcing work to us. So there, was, there were pitches, I remember it was with a, a large regional bank again. Uh, we were pitching it directly as web marketing and then two, the other three, two vendors that were in the pitch were two of our partners who were pitching our services. So either way, we won the contract, but we were essentially, you know, we had partners and, and uh, we stay all, all roads lead to web because we had a really just deep, deep network, especially between Chicago, New York, there just weren't other agencies doing what we were doing. And for maybe people not as familiar, what exactly were the products and values that you guys were driving for these companies? Like what was your sales pitch to them when you sure. sat down with them? Sure, it was, it's so interesting to watch the ball because it was only a five year run. Um, in the early days, Companies would approach us because they thought they had to do SEO or they had to do AdWords or they had to be on Facebook or Twitter, and they didn't really know why. Um, and, and truly, you dig down with the marketing person, they'd say, well, our CEO was on the plane, he picked the Wall Street Journal out of the pocket on the back of the plane, and he read an article about Twitter, and so we gotta be on Twitter now. So there was, originally it was just, we don't know how to get on Twitter, help us get on Twitter. We don't know how to optimize our site for search, help us optimize. We don't understand Google Analytics, help us understand it. The industry quickly matured, and probably two or three years into that company, it became, help us get more sales, voters, donors, patients, you know, whatever that is, whatever our core metric is, help us use social media search, online advertising to drive those metrics. Um, so that, that generated a lot of excitement, a lot of business because we could, you know, the, the joke about half of marketing is wasted, you don't know which half. We were able to say, this search keyword helped you sell $10,000 of product. This AdWords program helped you generate um, 10 new donations. This Facebook ad or this Facebook post helped you generate do this many more leads. So we could tie that back and then that essentially inspired our clients to keep investing. We almost never lost a client, we almost never lost an employee. You know, clients would just keep investing because compared to a lot of other marketing channels, we could they could come to us and we could say, here's you spent this with us, here was your return. So did you guys do any work clear sailing as well? Yeah, clear sailing was a great partner. Uh, in the early Michael and East Randy Adam worked with all those guys. We were founded about the same time. We sat in each other's offices, we went on pitches. I carried some of their cards, their you know they so we, we definitely collaborated very closely with them. Uh, we were roast, the companies were roast sold within 30 days of each other. So we started the same, we sold the same. That's and, crazy. Yeah. It is, it is a little wild. So, so how did you guys grow? And then, and, and then what brought you out of web marketing? Sure, sure. So the interesting thing, we never had a new business development person. All, the, all of it came from speaking and media. So we had, and referrals. So we had um, a lot of good organic growth. An interesting thing, and I, again, I'd like to say this was strategic and well-planned, it was more we fell into it and capitalized. Um, when, the, when digital agencies started popping up, you know, a couple years into our existence, they all wanted to work on movies and retail and pop culture and kind of sexy brands. We found this really nice niche in healthcare. In part, being in Columbus, our, some of our first clients were in healthcare. Um, and so we started really focusing on, there was this perception of you couldn't do social media and healthcare because of HIPAA and because of privacy and patients don't want to be talked to their doctors on Facebook. That seems, again, that seems silly today in 2008, 2009, that was the, the consensus. So we put a lot of our efforts into healthcare and, and that just grew like crazy. Um, so we, you know, by the end we were working with um, the Cleveland Clinic, Stanford, Duke, St. Jude's, and not to mention great regional systems all across the country. Um, almost 900 hospitals were in our client base, um, you know, by the time we all was said and done. And then eventually when the exit came, how did that opportunity unravel? And then um, did you have any second guesses or was it you knew it was time to go? Sure, sure. It was coming up on the anniversary. So it was St. Patrick's Day of 2011. 
Um, two things happened that day. So one, I was in the office, I had a little bit of a sore throat, a little bit of a tickle, and uh, went to the urgent care by in the grocery store. And I remember I, I checked in, it was middle of cold and flu season, so the doctor said it'll be you know 20 or 30 minutes, and we needed dog food, so I went and bought dog food. And I'm waiting, I'm starting to tickle a little bit more. And I go back to the doctor, and she looks at me, and she says, you know, your, your throat's swelling shut. She's like, there's something really wrong here. Either I can call a squad or if you can get to Riverside fast enough to get to Riverside. So I get to I get in the car, drive to Riverside, and by then I'm, I'm talking like this, and I, I go in up to the desk. And if you've, you know, you've ever been in any ER room in any hospital, it's chaos, you can wait for hours. I said two words, and the woman looked at me and brought me back right away and checked me in. Um, physician came back, he's like, you need to call your wife, Something, something's not right here. Um, they put me in the MRI machine, and my phone's ringing this whole time. And these voicemails coming in, and uh, the radiologist who read the MRI came out and said, you, know, you have the biggest abscess in your trachea, the one you breathe through, right? Not your esophagus, but the trachea, yeah. Mm -hmm. That we've ever seen here. It's, it's, it's turning to liquid. You're literally drowning right now. Um, so we need to go in and we need to operate, do this procedure right now. So they put me on the table. I remember the Dukes of Hazard was on. Remember the goofy things you remember. Uh, you know, my <laughs> wife gets there right away. She's in a panic. The doctor comes up. He's still in like, his gym shorts because he must have been working out. They paged him. So he wasn't in scrubs or gloves or anything. Uh, they don't put me out. I see this the uh, goes down my throat, and I watch this vial of what looks like motor oil being filled up next to me. Um, so long story short, procedure went fine. They realized I had uh, uh, an autoimmune issue that was causing my own immune system to attack my trachea. Uh, and at that point, you know, I was traveling a lot. I wasn't eating right. I wasn't sleeping right. I was working all the time. Uh, so I wasn't helping the issue. Um, woke up the next day in the hospital. Checked my voicemail, of course. They're still obsessed with work, but I checked it. And there was a voicemail from someone that does mergers and acquisitions. And he said, hey, we've been retained to look at uh, companies to purchase. Um, you're on the list. We want to talk to you. And, and we'd gotten offers before. Then we'd actually decided not to go through the process. We looked at a couple different agencies who were looking to acquire us, decided to hold off on that. Uh, but as I'm laying there in the hospital bed and uh, realized what I'd just been through, I said, you know, let, let's talk. So um, called the guy back. It was actually Fathom, uh, based out of Cleveland who at the time was operating like four or five different online agencies. They had a, one in manufacturing, one in retail, one in education. We're looking to get into healthcare. Um, the CEO, the CFO, their chairman couldn't have been more gracious, uh, couldn't have been more fair. We closed the deal amazingly quick. Um, I was thinking of signing at the end of July from, from the first contact in March till you know, everything done and the deal done into July. Um, no contention, you know, it was, it was a great relationship. And I went back to Pam and Carol and, and Paul and some other advisors uh, on this process, and they, they warned me of all the gotchas and all the stuff that usually happens because most mergers and acquisitions just don't work, and none of those things happen. Like they, the father just couldn't have been more gracious. The process went quickly, um, sold the company. Then at the end of July of 2011, and basically, you know, there was a you know there was a cash value with buying Web, and then an equity partnership where essentially Fathom said, hey, if you stay on, we'll do um, essentially a joint venture. We'll start Fathom Healthcare together. So. They provided some of these resources. I got to start over again from a, you know, more from a ground up, a clean slate type environment, um, and then started building Fathom Healthcare. So you started that. Uh, deal goes in July. When did you start going on full board with that? Sure, that was pretty much August. It was pretty much a, a transition of, you know, web went away one day, the sign changed. Um, and, and, you know, part of what I always say when I write a book, someday I'm going to call it, I don't give a damn about your chair. <laughs> and the, the, the focus there is in the early days of a startup, Everyone's on the mission. People just, they can't wait to get to work every day. 
they can't wait to make a difference, they, they love their coworkers, or you have this great collaboration. When you get to a certain point, you know, around 20 people, a few million dollars, some steady clients, this, people start saying, ah, I don't really like this chair. And you're, so you're dealing with, and I think that's just representative of like the passion's gone. But if you have time to think about your chair, there's a lot of stuff you're not thinking about. And I think we were, you know, we're starting to reach that phase where a little bit of that energy was starting to go away. Uh, so with Fathom Health here, got to kind of blow the whole thing up, start over with a new perspective, focus exclusively on healthcare, build off the clients there. Uh, so I had the chance then to build that for a few years. Kind of the same model got that to the point where you know, it was about the same size. And um, I remember that day too because it was, you know, been a few years in and uh, we just closed um, Stanford. So one of the largest, most prestigious research hospitals in the country. And the sales guy went over and he, we had the bell. So we rang the bell and everybody looked up. And they're like, hey, we just closed Stanford. It's like, yeah, cool. And then we all looked down and started typing again. And I remember thinking, like, if this had been, you know, in the early days, if we closed the podiatrist down the street for $500 a month, we'd take the day off and have happy hour, get pizza, and it was like, it was a party. And now it's like, here we close this, you know, one of the most prestigious clients we could possibly close, and it was, we were happy, but it was that, you know, it was the, my chair's uncomfortable type of moment again. Mm -hmm. um, so decided to make the exit then out of, you know, uh, sold off my shares then and mm -hmm. started over again. Yeah, and, and that, does that bring us to where you're at currently? That, that was Futurity, and Futurity yeah. was, uh, you know, at the time I rented an office, I bought the domain name because it was available, and I registered the LLC, and then I just went and I talked to people what they wanted. So there wasn't, you know, it wasn't necessarily I was in love with an idea that I wanted to launch, it's just I'm gonna go, I'm gonna start a business and I'm just gonna go talk to see what people want. Uh, and it evolved a lot of you, you know, the first versions of the site, we thought we we're gonna be a telemedicine medical billing company, which is not at all we turned out to be, but. Talked to some hospitals, it seemed like that's what they wanted. It turned out, you know, they wanted something different and they wanted, and so basically it's just been the last year. And up until um, January of 17, it was really, it was me, there would be some grad students that would help us from time to time, it's my wife. So it was very much a, a hobby business a little bit. You know, I'd get up in the morning, I'd work out, I'd go fish a little bit, I'd do some work. So it was, it was very much a, a hobby transition business and a lifestyle business. And then last January, um, really figured out the messaging and the solution what people needed and started hiring and in a year we've gone from you know a hobby business to now we've got 10 employees we've got someone new starting next week we've got you know 15 or 20 clients 100% client retention you know growing we bought a, a building uh, that we're moving into in a few months so it you know from January last year till today it's just been you know, 100 miles an hour again so can you talk about the evolution of you know your guys's product and your mission and, and what you guys are dedicated towards now versus when you first started? Sure, sure. And one thing that doesn't change, you know, the culture is just something I believe in. It's, it's it's a cliche, but culture first. Take care of people. Be overly fair and gracious to your clients and vendors. You know, pay your bills on time. Over deliver clients. Like doing all that stuff. That's really what the business is. What you deliver is kind of an afterthought. Whether it's you know long chairs or telemedicine or data analytics. But our, our evolution, we started with this idea that healthcare systems had gotten really good at the digital marketing and analytics, but tools like telemedicine and point of care apps and do-it-yourself healthcare, they hadn't figured out yet. So we said, we're gonna market that. And we met with healthcare systems and they liked the idea, but they also said, you know, we're looking at innovation at a bigger level. So not just help us find a telemedicine app, help us shape an innovation strategy. Um, so for a few weeks, we're an innovation company. We actually closed some deals there. And, and um, what we found is there's a trend where large, you know, fortune-style companies, they, they dominate their industry for years. There's five or six dominant players. Suddenly some startup comes up, starts eating their lunch, taking market share. You know, the CEO says, we need to innovate. They build an innovation lab. 
And then a lot of times that, that innovation lab isn't, isn't producing something or isn't, doesn't have the tools to, to really innovate or compete or think like entrepreneurs. So our, our idea is let's hire a bunch of recovering entrepreneurs. Uh, so we brought on, um, you know, if you know Sean Young from, from Elena Fitznardini, he was part of the team. Uh, Phil Payne, who's had multiple startups. Um, Lindsay Morris, who was an earlier employee at Groupon. We basically searched out people that were entrepreneurs, bring them together, and let's bring all the stuff we know about innovation to these innovation centers, these corporate innovation centers. Um, so we got deep into that, had a few deals there, that was going well. And then the light bulb went off one day and said, you know, a lot of innovation comes down to having a lot of data, being able to mine data effectively, do data smart, and then being able to accelerate your business using technology tools. So they, you know, the example would be if I'm going to um, anticipate a population that's, that would need a diabetes care. If I'm working for a healthcare system, and we want to innovate, we have diabetes care centers. If we got a bunch of data that could help us indicate um, claims data, medical data, even, even things like the percentage of fast food uh, locations per capita, um, unemployment rate, all those things could be indicators of, of diabetes. So you have all this data, we got really smart data scientists who figure that out, can predict, here's the, the diabetes you know, population over the next few years. And then you have the marketing tech people who can say, okay, how do we communicate with these people before they have diabetes? How do we offer preventative advice? How do we build locations in the right areas? And so spinning that up. And so that the evolution then became, and, and then we realized everyone besides healthcare needs this too. So we still have healthcare clients. We have a lot of food clients, of all, you know, foods evolving. Um, FinTech, do a lot of space with insurance and finance. Um, so now our clients span all industries, but what they have in common is they, they want to get their product development and marketing and sales smarter, and you do it by having, understanding your data, being able to manage, draw insights from that very quickly, and then being able to accelerate your sales, marketing, and product development faster using marketing tech tools. Yeah, and where, where do you get this data from? Sure. A lot of times it's internal client data, so they will have their own sales data, um, their own claims data, their own um, website data, social media data, so a lot of those internally. We also license a lot of data, so there's um, tools out there we can essentially license. If, if you name it, you know, it's out there. There's, I'm sure there's a database on uh, whatever the Academy Award winners and how they correlate to this. So we, that, and then there's a lot of free government data. So essentially we would, we would pipe in data, um, you know, like, I think we mentioned this maybe, but the example of, you know, if you can predict when a woman's about to get pregnant and then reach her with products and services that are, are relevant to her, especially first-time moms who aren't loyal to any brands yet, um, so you can pick up shopping data from their target card, for example, and see when do women start buying um, unscented lotions, when do they stop buying alcohol, when do they buy a bigger purse or rugs, that can be a clue. And then you can start to pull in a company's own website data and say what um, guides are being downloaded, what white papers are being downloaded, what videos are being watched, and you can layer that in. And then census data to see what neighborhoods are tend to be selling a lot of homes where there's older people, you know, either passing away or going to nursing homes or going to assisted care, and it's being populated by younger people who don't have kids yet, and then you pull in school data, who's got really good school data, and all those things together, you can start to say, okay, here's a population of women that are about to have their babies for the first time. So that, that's the data side. And then you spin up the marketing tech, and instead of trying to reach those women one-on-one, -on -one, you put 100,000 names into the machine, and they get coupons, and they get Facebook ads, and they get emails, and then you, you, know, you, you just accelerate that machine. So you guys taking more of a consultative approach then to working with the clients, or is it like you're delivering actual, like, you don't have like an actual product or anything like that, correct? It's more... Sure. It's all services-based okay. um, today, and it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, we, we came, we whiteboarded this idea probably three or four months ago because we've been working on the messaging, like, we got it. We're data-driven. 
technology enabled, sales and marketing, like three buckets. It's clear, we've got the elevator pitch down. Uh, we felt very good about it, we've tested it. New clients like it, prospects like it, it, it tested well. And then what we saw is, you know, a week or so ago that IBM Watson had acquired an agency and they were saying, our services are data, marketing tech, execution. Uh, and then I saw, um, uh, I think Accenture's building a location here at Columbus and they have, these are the three, three services. So I think it's, it's one of those things where everybody, everybody says they thought of Uber at the same time as they thought of the iPad. It's the, the world was right for that. Uh, so short answer, right now we're 100% services. We use tools like Salesforce and Amazon and Pardot and Tableau. Uh, what we're looking at in the meeting I mentioned today, that my, my coffee meeting, is we're looking at vendors in machine learning and artificial intelligence. And you, you know, look at the, um, like look at the Netflix model. So Netflix for years, they were the channel. They provide content and they see what movies we all watch. They know a lot about us, they could data append us, so they know if you're a 35-year-old male, you like characters with you know, a supernatural element and a strong female lead and diverse personalities because they watch us re rewind it and what we fast forward and what we say, what we rewatch, and then they make stranger things. And so they make the, so they, you know, they, they watch what kind of comedy you like, you like awkward situations, you like a young female lead, you like um, you know, these stereotype characters, and then they make Kimmy Schmidt. So they take all this data, essentially. Amazon's doing it with Kindle books. They see what we highlight, what we don't read, what we reread, what we skip, and now, you know, an Amazon robot is essentially can write like James Patterson now. You can make that. Our, our theory is, can we do that same thing? Can we take all this data in and we can say, here's, if you want to reach young Hispanic moms, first time moms in Arizona, this is the perfect email subject line for them. This is the perfect time of day. This is the perfect Facebook ad to compliment with. This is the perfect Instagram image to use. And if you build that intelligence in and that machine keeps getting smarter, you know, that's how you scale a company. So that's without giving away all our secrets, but I pretty much just did. That, that's, you know, <laughs> that's really our next big mission is how do we, you know, data science and marketing tech people are, they're great. We recruit from all over the country. We're moving people here from San Diego and Chicago to, to Columbus. And so we're investing a lot in people. Um, and every time we close a new client, we've got to hire two more people. So to scale that now, it's okay. How do we layer in machine learning and artificial intelligence? Yeah, and I think, I remember Netflix, you know, when you say Netflix was collecting all that data, I think it was, what was it, around Christmas time that they were tweeting about there was one guy who watched like the Arnold Schwarzenegger Christmas movie, like. Oh yes, 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 yes. And they said, "Who do you?" He's like, "Like, dude, who hurt you?" Yeah. <laughs> like, like, and I'm like, I can't even, I can't even believe Netflix can post that. Yeah. Who caused you this right, pain? Right. Yeah. Like, but yeah. So I mean, yeah, Netflix is definitely watching. Yes. But exactly. um, that's where their shows are great. That they they don't have to guess. It's yeah. they, they know all the elements and make a great show. Um, orth orthogonal testing, I think, is when you test multivariates and then can build the perfect product. So, what are the crucial next steps for you guys, hire wise? Um, you know, any areas that you guys really feel like you need to grow first? Is there any specific attention besides just the artificial intelligence sure. side? Sure. You know, right now, a lot of it is just bringing the best and brightest talent. There's a talent war in Columbus. There's a talent war everywhere. I, I was saying earlier today, it's interesting when we are, you know, we're recruiting from San Diego and Chicago to find talent because there's a lot of talent in Columbus, which is uh, words I never thought I would say. It's great that Columbus is doing so well. It's also, it's a challenge to, to staff. Are those like engineer, computer, computer engineers? Sure. There's really two areas. One, we need data people. So data scientists, mathematicians, statisticians, and then two, the marketing tech, the Amazon black belts, the Salesforce black belts, the Pardot black belts. Um, a lot of companies in Columbus need those people. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's sometimes challenging to find them. So, uh, but I mentioned, you know, we, we, we bought this building, so we want to build out this center of excellence in data and marketing tech here in Columbus, Ohio. So that's, that's the first thing to get the right talent on board, build a, just a bulletproof team that we can go head to head with, you know, the big, the, the IBMs, the Accentures, because this is who's coming into the space. It's not gonna be Publicis and Omnicom and Arnold, it's not gonna be the marketing agencies. They're the ones that 
they want to stick to sexy branding and, and that sort of thing. It's going to be the big five consulting firms, um, tech companies that are going to come into this space. Um, so our goal is first build that, that center of excellence with people, the right talent, and then simultaneously be developing our, our technology. Are you going to raise any capital or are you just kind of bootstrap it or self-funded? Or? Sure, sure. My philosophy is to bootstrap as much as it's feasible and possible. Um, I say that, but I'm an angel investor too, so I, part of the story I guess I left out is after that acquisition, I joined OTAF and I've, I've invested in probably you know, 20 or, or more companies here in Columbus. Um, so I, I believe in, in that model and I believe in supporting um, from a, I think it's just my Midwestern blue collar roots is I hate being in debt and I hate having that over my head. So in general, you know, I prefer um, to bootstrap as long as possible and to build a, you know, a business that we, we take very deliberate steps to have businesses that can, clients that can help us generate cash flow in the near term and then clients that help us build long-term equity in the company. And that's always, it's spin and plates, you're balancing. Um, but yeah, the objective now is to, to not raise capital. Yeah, and, and what's your long-term goal? Sure, you know, I, I would love to just build something that is, is amazing. You know, to build, build a, a product or a service that people remember, that people cite. It was, you know, in, in the web days it was really neat because I could, even other parts of the country, people knew who web marketing was and we had this, this reputation, especially with our industry, and just we delivered in a way that we could be really proud of. So having that, again, um, I've mentioned a lot of our team members are former entrepreneurs and probably want to go there again, so we also want to use this as a launch pad for them. I think there'd be no greater compliment than to have one of our star players you know, go and launch their own company and build that, so it'd be a, you know, kind of like the, uh, the GE model where it almost becomes a training ground for further entrepreneurs. Um, the goal is not to drive top line at the expense of everything else and sell the company you know, and uh, go live on a boat. You know, I certainly have no uh, interest in that, so it's really long-term center of excellence on the people remember yeah and, and you know and do you think that you'll be able to so i mean in your past roles you say hey when you get to that chair hey yeah <laughs> chair stage, sure. you kind of feel the need to jump ship do you think you'd be able to push through that or i mean do you see yourself what's your long sure. i mean your personal sure. long-term plan? Well, that's a very fair question i think you know i've i think it is such a very different skill so i think managing a company to two million dollars is very different than what it takes to get to 10 million. It's very different than what it takes to get to 100 million. It's very different than what it takes to get to a billion. And, and the analogy I use is someone might be really good at soccer and origami, but it would just be a coincidence that they are. You know, someone, someone who's good at, um, actually I think you're all wrestlers, right? So congratulations yesterday, right? So someone's good at, at <laughs> he's in jujitsu. So if you're good at jujitsu, you're probably a pretty good wrestler and you're probably pretty good rugby. Like those, those skills overlap and there's some things to build off of. I would argue going from this, the $2 million CEO and the $10 million CEO, One's not harder than the other. They're just completely different skill sets. And I'm, I'm smart enough to know I'm a good, you know, 20 person, couple million dollar CEO. I'm not a 10 or 100 million dollar CEO. So, you know, the long term plan there would be to build a succession plan to move into, like a chairman type role. And I, I think if you watch how investors do it, you know, when they invest, they usually kind of have to push the CEO out the door at that point. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go quietly. Like I'm going to go gracefully <laughs> I, on my own terms. But you know, I think the idea would be build a succession plan or find that management team that is really good at taking it from two to ten with them having the knowledge that once they get to 10, it's probably a different skill set too. And I think you just, you're humble and you're smart and you realize what you're good at. And you know, there's no, you need to take the, the sexiest.com, you know, no, no founder ever makes it that far. They move into a chief creative officer or a chief strategy officer, or even, you know, get Larry and Sergey at Google. Like they knew the point, they're not, you're not a CEO at that level. 
right? Unless you really are one of those unicorns like like Zuckerberg. Yes, exactly. Like, like there's one in a one in sure. a million. Sure. But there's not very many guys that are going to be able to take that thing the whole way. Exactly. So I definitely agree with Correct. that. I think it's I think it's really important to understand where it's you're good at, and, and especially for the good of your own company, realize like, hey, this is where this is where I'm good, and this is where I'm not. So right. I, you know, it's impressive to have that much of an understanding of yourself, but. Uh, I think this is kind of a good time to pivot towards some of our last questions. So, um, you know, what number one, you got any advice for our listeners out there? There are, you know, a lot of young professionals, entrepreneurs, ages 19, 35, throughout the city of Columbus. Great. Yeah, um, sure. You know, I think it's, it's hard, and I think you've probably figured that out already if you're an entrepreneur. Um, I think most people, if you stop 10 people on the street and say, would you want to own your own business? Nine would probably say yes, especially if that depending on the day they had at work. So I think there's this perception that everybody, you know, thinks they want to be an entrepreneur. Um, you know, it's, it's for very few of those people and almost all startups fail. So you've, by the time you will it down, it's, it's that realization that it's, it's hard. Uh, but I, I've kind of got, between my own startup experience and companies I've invested, I'm on some boards, I've done some consulting, I've probably seen, and I actually have my list here, but there's probably about five things or so that I've seen separate the ones that work and the ones that don't. Uh, so if you'll indulge me, but the first one is, you know, make sure you're solving a real problem that people will, will pay for. Uh, and a lot of times what I see is entrepreneurs, they fall in love with a problem they have or an idea they have, and they think everyone else should love it too. That's why what I love, I love telling the futurity story because again, it was, it was a domain and an office, and I just went and I talked to them and say, what would you buy? Um, the guys at the office, they make a joke about how I build this <laughs> versus how I built this, but they'll say, you know, Bill goes out and meets with a prospective client, the client says, we need this, and I come back to the office and says, guys, we're gonna build this, and we're gonna solve this problem. And I think that's the way to do it, is, is solve a problem people will pay for. Um, I think you got to be fair to people. So eventually, it will catch up to you if you don't pay your vendors, if you don't take care of your employees. I've, in this last round of interviews, you know, of the four finalists for a role, two of them talked about how they weren't getting paid from their current employer, and that just, that's bad karma. That always catches up to you. So, you know, be fair, be gracious. Um, Pam always told me number three would be if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Uh, and I think there's something intimidating about hiring people that are better and faster and smarter than you. I love it, and everyone I work with is better and faster than, and smarter than me. Um, and so I think that, that advice that there's just always a team around you that, that can accelerate, that, that you learn from. As a founder, you've got to be comfortable with that. Uh, for just working really, really hard. You're going to work harder than you've ever worked doing this. You're going to want to give up. It's going to impact your nights and your weekends. You're not going to sleep a lot, but you've got to be willing to work harder than. However hard you think you're going to work, you're going to work much harder than that. And then five would be adapt. There's when you see a lot of businesses that do well and then don't make it to that next step or don't make that transition from two to 10 million or 10 to 100, it's oftentimes because they're holding on to an idea that they're still in love with and they're not willing to change. You know, your business, when we hire someone, we tell them the job you're doing now will be very different than what you're doing in six months because what you're doing in six months might not even exist today. The ability to, you know, correlate data from these orthogonal surveys and visually displayed in Tableau, for, you probably, that probably doesn't exist today. In six months, we'll figure out how to do it. Um, so be willing to adapt. Yeah, and, and our final question we always like to ask centers around the theme on our show. Uh, it's live uncomfortably. And uh, without telling you too much about what we think about it, um, <laughs> what do you think of when you hear the phrase yeah. and how does it apply to yeah. your life? I, I love that, and I saw that in one of the quotes. Uh, so I used to work with an account manager, and he would say, if I'm not making someone mad, I'm not doing my job. And I would always push back and say, if you're not uncomfortable, you're not doing your job. So I love the fact that how you do that, you know, I think there's two sides of that coin. So one is, you know, it's, when I look at back at my life and I think about what I've accomplished and what I failed, you know, I can say everything I failed at doing was because I didn't work hard enough. So that's, that's a pretty uncomfortable thought because you could say, well, whether it's personal or professional, you can say I, 
you know, I didn't, this company didn't work because I had a lousy investor, I had terrible clients, I had an awful team, the government changed regulations. If you change that perspective to this company or that I didn't work because I didn't work hard enough at it, that's a pretty uncomfortable thing to say. It's a lot easier to blame others around you, the environment, the economy. I, I talk to people every day who said they had a startup idea in 2008 that failed because the economy crashed. But if you, if a lot of companies made it through 2008. So if you own that, that's a really, really uncomfortable thing to say. The other side of that coin is if you're always succeeding, you know, I talk to people and say, well, we want every pitch we bet on. My answer is you're not pitching high enough. You're, 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 you're playing in too minor of a league, man. If they say we've, uh, you know, our, every product we have has, has been uh, stellar and amazing, has never had a bug, then I'm saying you're not developing at a high enough level. You know, you need to, if uh, the like fitness example I use, if you say at the start of summer, I'm gonna run a five minute mile by Labor Day and you're running a five minute mile two weeks into the summer, that doesn't make you a great runner. It makes you a lousy goal setter. You're not aiming high enough. And that's, that's again, that's a very uncomfortable thought to think I'm winning all the time and instead of patting your back saying, that means I'm not playing high enough. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great answer, Bill. We, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show today. And Conquerors, thanks a lot for listening. That was Bill Balderas with a lot of great advice and you know a lot of great experiences from his journey as an entrepreneur. Uh, if you guys want to check out Futurity, you can check out the, their links in the show notes. I uh, hope you guys, again, enjoyed that episode. Talk to you next week. If you guys enjoyed that episode, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You can drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know you have to choose it and yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.